We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Thought Radio Network. Uh, I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, as usual, is Neil Bradley. Hello, everyone. Uh, we missed you last week because we had technical problems. We hope you uh, all didn't uh, run away in droves and abandon us because we were having technical issues. Um, we lost them to CNN, Joe. We lost them to CNN. Damn it. So, um, but we're back this week, and we will be going over lots of uh, stuff that's been happening in over the past few weeks, and maybe a bit further back as well, uh, around the world. Um, as you may have guessed, those that uh, keep up with what's going on in the world on a regular basis by reading sat.net, etc., um, you probably know that things haven't really got any better. <laughs> there hasn't been a sudden mass outbreak of... Um, Peace and love and uh, prosperity. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. It's uh, planet is fo- the planet and its people are following uh, the apparently inexorable path or walk or death shuffle uh, towards the cliff. So it's, it's um, a progress of sorts downwards. Yes, it's just going downwards. Yes. So you know that's good. Progress is good. Everybody likes progress. Nobody likes stagnation. Uh, it's not good to just be, you know. Not going anywhere, not going somewhere with your life, and certainly the planet is going somewhere. So um, where it ends up uh, remains to be seen, but uh, we shall see, I suppose. Anyway, um, for those who have read the description of the show today, it's um, we said we would headline the... Maybe not everybody's aware of it, but there was a referendum a couple of days ago. People in Ireland voted on uh, gay marriage, basically, to um, allow, legalize gay marriage in Ireland. Um, this was this is the only country, apparently, in the world so far that has uh, put this question to the people and allowed them to vote on it, uh, rather than having it just... Uh, done by politicians who decide to change laws. Uh, several different countries have done that. Not all of the U.S. has done it. Some states legalize gay marriage, but um, uh, some others still uh, do not legalize gay marriage in the U.S. or have not legalized gay marriage in the U.S., and it's it's uh, not possible there. In the U.K., for example, last year, I think, or the year before last, legalized gay marriage. Um yeah, France, has France legal. at the same time. There was a rapid succession of countries in the West. Um, I think it opened with some states in the U.S. and then U.K. and France, same time. Mm. Sure, I think California was high on the list there at yeah. the beginning, right? Yeah. They're also, also liberal. So they've been in the fray over there. And in Europe, the Netherlands, of course, I'm pretty sure all Western countries or most at this point have done so. So Ireland's really coming at the tail end of a of a trend that's a few years old. Mm. Um, it's surprising for a little Catholic country, in a way, and yet it's not because it has been 
as we said, legalized in many other Western countries. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's so so. If <clears throat> that's going to be part of our our topic, we may not spend much much time on it at all because it's obviously a, a difficult and nuanced uh, topic to discuss. Um, but we'll try and deal with it a little bit. Uh, and if anybody has any uh, comments or questions uh, on that, uh, ideally comments, I suppose, um, from a personal perspective, perspective perhaps, um, then feel free to, to either uh, you know write in the chat room or call in if you want to get some airtime. We have or we have opened our mics. <clears throat> so um, yeah. Like Neil just said, Ireland is a bit of a was known as a bit of a backward country, at least uh, from a progressive point of view. I suppose that's self-explanatory. It's uh, it, it was for a long time. It's been known as a very Catholic country, very uh, conservative. Let's say people are conservative in their beliefs, their Catholic beliefs, and uh, uh, in I mean, gay sex was only decriminalized uh, in Ireland in 1993. Um, and apparently there was an informal poll then because it was decriminalized by the government. There was no referendum, but apparently only one third of the country in 1993, according to polls, uh, backed the decriminalization of uh, homosexuality. Uh, so, and also then in 1995, divorce was only narrowly uh, legitimized or legalized in, in 1995. So uh, Ireland doesn't have a very... Uh, Historically, in the last 20 years or so, doesn't have a very... Uh, abortion is still illegal. And abortion is still illegal. So it doesn't have a very uh, progressive... Uh, uh, traditionally, doesn't have a very progressive population. Um, so it's surprising, I suppose. it's um, uh, It was interesting for, for people to to get the opportunity to to say their piece or to, to, to vote uh, individually on, on this issue of legalizing gay marriage. And it, was, it wasn't a surprise, I suppose, for because it was predicted that most people would agree because I suppose in the past uh, 20 years, since the mid-90s, Ireland has just become a liberal, you know, Valhalla, basically, where no longer is, any, uh, you know, conservative or Catholic uh, ideology or beliefs no longer hold sway. And it has, for somehow, somehow in those 20 years, it became, you know, an open society. It became just, a, uh, it, did, it did a complete turnaround, you know, at least on the gay rights issue. Yeah. It, the, the way that the, the debate was, was framed, it was framed around equality. And Irish people, you're always going to get First, to put the hand up and say, "Equal rights, equal rights for all." Yeah. We're, we're, we, that's why Irish people naturally gravitate, whether they're conservative or not, towards um, human rights issues. They speak often. Often, they're found among Western Europeans to speak loudest for Palestinians. It just comes naturally. It doesn't matter whether they only watch RT, BBC, and other mainstream news and get one view of it, namely Israel's. They're naturally gravitating towards other little people who are oppressed. So when it's framed in that context, equal rights for all, they go, of course, sure, yeah, no problem, here. Mm -hmm. They're not really, uh, they have no experience with kind of uh, gay pride with 
the whole multifaceted aspects mm. of the promotion of gay rights. They don't even, I mean, I don't know what percentages of people in Ireland would say that they are basically not heterosexual, so one of the other persuasions, mm. but it's very small. It's very small. It's very small internationally, I think, around the world. It's very small officially. I mean, in the U.S., there was that story recently um, where a poll was taken in the U.S. Uh, asking people how many, what percentage of the population they thought were homosexual, and people were saying 25%, roughly, uh, when the actual number is 3.8%. So, I mean, that speaks to the fact that gay rights, etc., have been really pushed to the forefront of political and cultural debate in recent years to the point where uh, people in the U.S., and I'd say this is true for other countries, particularly in, in, in the West, where people think that um, there are more homosexuals in society, uh, a bigger percentage of the population are homosexual, uh, than, than they are, a, a much bigger percentage, you know, than that has really taken uh, a place in society, in, in, in people's minds and people's uh, consciousness as being something that's very much a big part of our society, when the actual demographics of it speak otherwise. Uh, so that's, uh, I mean, okay, so the point where, I suppose the point we're making here is, is that there is a, there's a, a disconnect between the actual percentage of population, uh, percentage of uh, the population that is homosexual in any society and the extent to which the homosexual, homosexual, the homosexual issue or the, the, the gay rights issue is given uh, a, a stage on which to be debated and to which it is debated, that it's, it's debated far, far more than you would think uh, it should be given the number of people in society. Um, so the question, that that's separate from equal rights because equal rights effectively should be just a, a, a small issue um, in the sense that, I mean, I, I think that, for example, it seems obvious to me that people in any country in the world uh, should not be discriminated against for their sexuality. That should never have been the case. And um, it should never have been brought up and, and allowed to get to the point where it's such a big, all-encompassing issue. Um, it should never have really been an issue. There should have been, if necessary, there should have been, and it probably would have been necessary to uh, educate people or inform people or have discussions, but on a fairly low-key, in a fairly low-key way. Uh, and uh, people of, you know, other, let's say, homosexual, homosexuals or, or gay people should should um, have simply been a normal part of society, like uh, uh, normal members of society, without this massive, um, let's say, a massive or very large um, kind of uh, propaganda that that surrounds gay rights issue. That that for me, that's an anomaly. But of course, you could say that it's because people were discriminated against uh, for so long that that is what has led to it having such a high profile, that they've had to shout loud and long to get to the point of having equal rights. Um, so yeah, it's a thorny issue, yeah. obviously, and it's not black and white, it's not simple, but it's been made very simple. That's my problem, effectively, with... Uh, 
with the current state of the gay rights movement, and as it has been for quite a long time, is that it's presented in, in fairly simplistic, Just it's just about equality. Well, it's not just about equality. I mean, equality is important and equality should be afforded to everyone. Um, let's, let's talk specifically here on, let's say, on, on sexual orientation grounds. That's all it should be. I mean, it's that, that's the one issue that's been effectively debated here and discussed. Should homosexuals have equal rights for their sexuality? Yes, they should. And that's it. Now that it's, if, when it's achieved, or let's say now that it's achieved in, in Ireland, for example, in the UK and France, then do we expect, can we expect to see a reduction in the level of gay rights propaganda movements or gay rights, uh, gay rights movements in, in these countries? Um, I don't think so. Probably because not. Because it's taken on a life of its Probably own with this not. As, as the head of um, Ireland's gay pride or, organization, they organize a parade every year in Dublin, like in many other Western capitals. As he said, after the result was announced, this year in June, we're going to have our biggest ever. It's going to mm-hmm. encourage mm-hmm. Uh, the increase. Um, it's, going to incre- it's going to encourage an even greater presence. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Of, of gay pride and that's uh, it's, like Joe says it's a thorny issue but that's where uh, people who have a strong enough opinion about it to either vote no if they're given a chance or to advocate against it that's where they say they're coming from you see if you allow gay marriage well the natural extension of that is you allow a family setup of some, court, some sort they adopt children or some other ways to, to in vitro with oh mm-hmm. uh, agreements with other foster parents and so on, they can legally raise families. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a separate issue. Okay, it's a separate issue. Well, but no, but well, that's what I'm saying. It should be a separate issue, but it's, it's, it's not. It's lumped together with right. people are, it's not being talked about really, and it's being lumped together with uh, equal rights. Um, there are, there's the question of equal rights as in, should gay people be allowed to marry? Yes. But that should then not extend to, as a as a blanket coverage or a blanket blanket um, approval or sanctioning of all of the other issues that come along with that. They should be up for debate as well. But I don't think that's going to be the case now. You know what I mean? The the, the with the discrimination angle, which is justified, uh, that has been used to to kind of push forward basically full acceptance, full full spectrum acceptance of all of the issues around homosexuality and like you just mentioned, homosexual, for example, uh, families and family units and children growing up, et cetera, with, for example, two two men as parents. Yeah. That, that now is kind of, I get the impression that's that's not up for discussion anymore. It's been decided on. Yeah. Uh, is it, gay, gay people should be allowed to marry. Are we, therefore, they should be allowed yeah. to do, everything should follow on with that. All other yeah. rights afforded to a heterosexual couple, for example, are afforded to a gay couple now. Uh, I don't think that's fair or right or reasonable or good for society. I'm not saying that uh, that I have any uh, hard and fast ideas on what answers to those other questions are, but that they should they should also be up for debate. Uh, because, I mean, I don't know how many people, people listen to this show. How many people listen to this show? I don't know. Obviously, you can't answer, but it's just a question to ask yourself, maybe. I mean, the idea of... 
I mean, one of the big topics, one of the big uh, points being made in this debate is should uh, is it is it just as good for a child to be reared by two men as it is for a child to be reared by a a man and a woman or a woman or two women? You know, the idea of a mother, basically, the idea of I mean, personally, you know, this isn't a, I'm not prejudiced in any way. Um, and I mean that, but for me, just kind of instinctively and from what I, my own personal experience of, of women, uh, I think uh, women have just fundamentally and naturally a, a far more nurturing uh, instinct, a much more nurturing instinct than men have for children. And women can give to children, especially their own children, they've given birth to women can give love and care and nurturing in a, in a very particular way that isn't even just... Uh, physical uh, to those children that a man can't or generally speaking men can't I'm not going to say in every case but generally speaking men can't and don't because of their nature mm-hmm. so for me the idea of, if I was asked and this is this, I would say this without any prejudice at whatsoever and no one could accuse me of any prejudice whatsoever I would say that, it's, that a child needs a mother needs a woman at, from the moment it's born mm-hmm. and through its formative years that I think it, it's it's better. I'm not saying that it's going to cause the destruction of society if children, if some children are brought up in, in with with two male uh, caretaker, you know, parents, quote unquote. Obviously, they're not really a parent. Well, you know, whatever. But I'm saying that it's not an ideal situation, and I I would uh, contest or disagree with anybody who suggests that who would suggest that, that is in any way prejudiced or homophobic, or whatever. That's just, for me, that's self-evident. So for me, that's why I say there are other issues to discuss here. You can't just say, oh, it's fine, and it's all about quality, and shut up, and you're a homophobe, or you're a, you're, you're, you're a bigot, or you're prejudiced, uh, if, you, if you don't accept uh, all aspects of uh, homosexuality and what it implies, the implications that it has for society, particularly in the context today of it being completely legitimized, let's say, right down to uh, everything, all the rights that uh, that non, <clears throat> the non-gay community have, whatever. What's worse is that um, in the Western countries these days, the, the gatekeepers of morality, of what's right and wrong, by their collective actions, speaking generally, show that they are invariably deviant in some way or another, first and foremost greedy. Mm. They're attracted to power and they'll do anything to get it and keep a hold of it. Um, they are prone to very, they find it very, very easy to make decisions that involve killing large numbers of people. Mm. They find it very, very easy to impoverish millions of their own people. And as we saw and discussed briefly on the UK, they, their reply to the population that they're supposed to be governing, saying to them, but we're not happy with the fact that you're buggering children. Their reply being, well, it's ingrained in society now, you're going to have to live with it. And then voting in the same people to be the responsible managers of society. Um, When you have these kinds of people who have the keys to framing the laws, framing the debates that lead up to the laws, actually writing the laws, and then 
implementing and adjudicating on specific decisions, and there will be some hard decisions in cases that will come up now, you can. it doesn't take a genius to work out this is going to be very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, France is some way along where there's been a backlash among ordinary people uh, to the tune of up to half a million people protesting in recent years. Their specific issue, I think the thing that turned the tide for them was uh, the extent to which uh, homosexuality slash and a separate topic here, um, sexuality in general would be taught to very young children statewide in statewide programs in the school system to the extent of explaining to six and seven year olds uh, how to masturbate, that it's good to masturbate, what this is, what daddy does here and that daddy has another daddy friend. <laughs> just the whole spectrum was just opened up to the children and parents talk to the streets. Um, now, the response of the government was uh, abysmal. They basically cast all of these people as extremists. Um, half a million people protesting, doesn't matter. They just said, oh, they're all from the extreme right or they're being misled by the extreme right as to what's actually going on in our country. That's, that's just one example of France. But you could probably take any other Western country. So uh, <clears throat> this is what we mean when we say... Uh, on any given issue, let's have a good look at it. But all of these things are happening in parallel and quickly. They're happening very rapidly in 10 years, really since 9-11. And particularly in more recent years, there's been a rapid succession of um, expansion of rights for mm-hmm. gay marriage. That's one issue. And a whole host of other things which often there wasn't a debate, it was just done. And then there was a kind of debate after the mm. fact, you know, because there was a public reaction. You mean like what? Well, like the one I described in France. Yeah. Um, I think the phenomenon that we're dealing with here, and it's a problem and it's seen, and there's another notable example of it, is that when a certain group of people, <clears throat> a certain demographic, come from a position of having been uh, persecuted, uh, that when that persecution is addressed and, uh, you know, equal rights are restored and society attempts to normalize the situation, uh, it can be taken too far, it can swing too far in the opposite direction where there can be a campaign highlighting all of the the abuse and persecution and discrimination that a certain demographic experienced and then they are therefore entitled to uh, special or privileged uh, conditions and consideration that actually goes to, like I said, goes to the opposite extreme that causes, uh, has a, may have a negative effect by going too far. I mean, the other example, obviously, I'm talking about here is, uh, it can be seen a little bit with the uh, with the Jews in the sense that uh, the promotion of, um, of the persecution of the Jews during the Second World War and the Holocaust uh, today leads to, has led to for quite a long time and today continues to lead to a silencing of any uh, debate or a silencing of a lot of debate over uh, the actions of the State of Israel, for example, uh, which is a Jewish state by by admission of, of or by recognition or, or by and a pronouncement of the of the 
of the, of the Israeli government that Israel uh, is a Jewish state. Uh, it represents the Jewish people. It's the homeland of the Jewish people. So therefore, what um, by that definition, what uh, the state of Israel does, what the government of Israel does, and what is sanctioned by the uh, Israeli people is essentially uh, uh, those are actions that are taken in the in the name of the of Jewish people everywhere. Uh, so when anyone uh, around the world has a problem with, for example, Israeli actions or persecution of Palestinians, um, it's very easy to bring up or to silence that by pointing to the persecution of the Jews in the Second World War and the Holocaust. Uh, so that's an example of where you have uh, persecution in the process of trying to address or redress a, 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 a historical persecution. You uh, facilitate the uh, persecution of others in the name of addressing that persecution or you uh, in some way uh, go too far and um, infringe on the rights of other people. So yeah. it's it's a swing in the other direction, like I said. So it's... It, it's a good... It's a, it only has, it has its limits, but it's a useful analogy in the broadest sense because um, uh, if, we, if we took ourselves out of time for a second, looked say we were transported temporarily back to the late 19th century and we were discussing today the situation of the treatment of Jews in Eastern Europe, particularly in Russia, but elsewhere also in general, the Jew, the Jewish question of the day. When Zionism was first proposed, namely, let's have an actual country to which Jews can go to, I think just about anyone, certainly good liberal thinking people at the time, were fully behind it. It was definitely the, or one of the um, true good causes that anyone, your granny, could get behind at the time because it did prevent good things. We have a problem. This this is, sounds like an eminent logical solution, so let's, let's go for it. Um, I, certainly my own, part of my own skepticism with uh this one small, relatively tiny issue, uh, the legalization of marriage for same-sex couples, not sweeping me along in the same euphoria as about everyone else is because, well, let's just, let's just listen to some of the, the statements um, made by people about the referendum result in Ireland. The, the health minister... <clears throat> Uh, described it as a social revolution in Ireland. It makes us, Ireland, a beacon of equality and liberty for the rest of the world. Uh, another minister told the Financial Times, this is about a new republic. It wasn't just a yes, but a resounding yes for a new, open, equal society. Hmm. And that's cynical capitalization it's by politicians on because they don't give a shit really, right? I mean, obviously he's talking about it's a beacon for uh, for equality around the world. Uh, this is coming on the heels of, uh, of 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 the banking quote unquote banking crisis now and a few years ago, where basically politicians conspired with the bankers to to eviscerate the the Irish. Um, well, the Irish, the, the Irish, the Irish, Irish economy, Irish economy, and and it's and the welfare state, and impoverish thousands of people. So, uh, or tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people have been thrown into poverty as a result of uh, this looting of Irish finance, essentially Irish taxpayers' money, by private bankers 
international bankers. They took they take all the money and uh, and impoverish these people, and the politicians are are in conspire effectively with them to do this. And then the same politicians come out and say that because of this passage of a gay uh, gay marriage law. Um, that we're a beacon of equality, really? It, Give me a break here. That's I ridiculous. And I mean, it's, another example is there's a the uh, rights, uh, equal rights, or not equal rights, and uh, uh, what was her name? There's a well, there's a minister in the UK in the British government. Um, uh, I can't remember her name, but she's a minister. She's the health and something else minister, basically uh, minor, right. minorities or something like that uh, minister. And in 2013, when the British uh, law was passed. It wasn't sent to a referendum, but they passed a law on gay marriage that approved uh, uh, marriage for same-sex couples. They, um, she voted against it. But in a tweet yesterday, when uh, uh, the Irish referendum was uh, voted yes, uh, she congratulated them and said it was a wonderful day for equality. So, I mean, she's she's one example <coughs> of of the hypocrisy and the the complete disingenuousness of of these politicians in using these issues and uh, and promoting and trying to pump the people up for yeah. and convince them it's a social revolution and we're all so great and equal and stuff when <laughs> when it's bullshit it's complete and utter horseshit. Bullshit. You know? Part of the reason we're even discussing this today is because internationally it did get uh, did receive a lot of attention. I mean, because in recent years it's been a hot topic issue and also because uh, I don't know I, I, it's like everyone. Everyone wants everyone. It's like to to be a a good citizen, to be seen as thinking right, thinking straight. You're going to be thinking one way on this issue, but this means you're thinking like this guy, U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, issued a statement: We welcome Ireland's support for equality. Hashtag Love Wins. <coughs> yeah. This man is a definite psychopath. Does yeah. that not make you go? I'm euphoric along with the psycho. Okay, I'm just going to at least temper my euphoria here for a second. Uh, yeah, on the issue, it's good. Okay, equal rights. But do you think anything is going to get better for anyone as a result of it? Well, it's, but it's, it's to give people a, a day out cheering and shouting in the streets and feeling good about themselves and feeling good about their country uh, to cover up all of the ills. Of, of which there are many. But that's, if you think in raw political terms, the last few years, I mean, scandals are coming out of the halls of power, like just pouring over the rafters. Um, they're up shit creek. They barely get the majority of people to turn out and vote. In fact, in the UK, they get a minority, right? And then, what was it, 12% voted in a government that will decide things for the next five years. That's just one example. But they're in the midst of crisis from crisis. They're going to capitalize on Anything that takes it away from them, and and I worry for gay people in the long run because you can bet that they'll just as easily put them out as a scapegoat to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's the problem. Things get worse. Yeah, that's what that's what galled me the most about it is that the people in Ireland and and elsewhere have, are being led along uh, by politicians. I mean, leading up to this referendum, there was a massive political campaign to push for a yes vote. You know. Uh, ordinary people in Ireland had felt that they had the support of the population, that they were united in their in their agreement that this was a, an equal rights issue, and we were going to be so we were going to be a beacon for the rest of the world if we could uh, if we agree that uh, gay marriage should be legalized, and uh, that it just means it's it's so wonderful uh, for us, and um, and 
the, the, the hypocrisy of these politicians in pushing that and, and, and capitalizing on that and using that for, like you just said, to cover up all of their own uh, criminality is just uh, disgusting. So I would much rather if people were to understand that and realize that and not allow this kind of a, a referendum to uh, allow the politicians to snuggle up to the people and say we're all we're all together we're all together in this we're all <clears throat> we're all manos you know we're on the same side basically when that's obviously not the case you know yeah and uh, it's it's astonishing this it's not astonishing because it's a global trend but with respect to Ireland it's astonishing that this happens at the tail end of about 20 years of revelations where it's now well established through countless public inquiries into child sex abuse scandals that uh, for multiple generations since the founding of the state in the 1921 or two, one in four children at every generation is sexually abused. Basically, it means the whole population has some kind of Stockholm Syndrome uh, all the way up to the present day. And for all the money and all the open openness in quotes, there, it wasn't really in the form of any truth commission. There were a few priests and a few maybe low people, a few bad apples went to jail briefly. Most of them were just demoted or shuffled around and moved. And you can bet that none of the real uh, enablers, let's say, certainly not the actual perpetrators of specific crimes, ever saw any form of punishment. Where's the equality in that issue? Mm-hmm. That's Ireland. Okay, since Joe's mentioned the economic crash, Ireland right now is in a situation where it's practically under receivership by the IMF, by the European Central Bank in Brussels. It's, it's not even in control of its own destiny. And they love lauding up this referendum, your freedom to choose, you know, free. <laughs> what, we're free? We're free to do what? We can't create government policy because we don't have a government of our own. Yeah. I mean, this is after specific conversations were leaked. They're called the Anglo tapes in which the bankers that set the ball rolling for the crisis, and one particular bank, Anglo-Irish Bank, appropriately named Anglo-Irish because most of our problems are linked up with the fact that we never really got independence from the UK. Anyway, the Anglo-Irish Bank, the managers are heard joking and laughing about it how they're going to pull the wool over the eyes of various government regulators. And they got away with it. They they managed to, they effectively got the Irish people on the hook for something like 60 or 70 billion euros, of which they've already paid off a third in taxes and slashing public welfare programs. Child poverty rate has shot up again to the mid-1980s, well, early 1990s level, 20% for a country of 3.5 million. I mean, it, it, just think of the sick joke of that where a good number of people who went to vote on this important issue have been shafted by the same mm-hmm. institutions that would pat them on the back and say, well done, you made us look good. I mean, you made us look good. That's basically what it is. It's it's, it's so disgusting. Um, and the, the most recent, the, the backlash against the austerity measures, because Ireland's in debt to its eyeballs, is a public reaction in the form of protests against water charges. Now, a water charge is basically a tax against the water you drink and use to. It should be a basic right, you know. Um, but this is the one issue the government won't back down on it because it's one of the few ways they can increase austerity and thereby uh, reduce 
the amount of government expenditure and on and thereby pay more back to those to the IMF, which loaned out the banksters that still are trading in New York and London and Dublin. And these protests have been growing and they're pretty ferocious. And it's like suddenly this is just forgotten about it. It's going to come back big time as soon as um, any kind of false euphoria over gay marriage and Ireland did great because we love equal rights. It's going to calm down. Uh, I don't know if it'll throw out the current government. The way things are snowballing, who knows? I don't think that any kind of major political upheaval in Ireland in particular is coming but uh, people are protesting and consistently they're pissed off and this is just a distraction yeah it's to make them feel good it's to make them feel like uh, it's a moment it's a day when they can go out and feel good about themselves and feel good uh, falsely effectively but feel good about uh, their country and their government by implication and the government piggybacks on that so and I mean you can understand why people would some people would want that, you know, because there have been so much uh, negative uh, experience or negative negative events in, in, in Ireland and around the world over the past uh, number of years that people have been out, like you said, people are protesting against the government for so many things and that gets a bit tiring and it makes you realise that, uh, you know, the creeping understanding or creeping recognition that that things are not all going so well. You might look forward to a moment where you could, you know, feel happy or feel good, you know. Um, but that's, that's not going to help anybody if it's essentially just creating a comfortable narrative to cover up the, the harsh truth. Because what this is about, a better word than equality would be justice. You know, you could call it justice as well, social justice. In terms of gay, uh, gay marriage, it could be a social justice issue. But justice can never be done and justice is never done unless the truth is known. Truth and justice go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Uh, it's never been the case that you could have true uh, justice and uh, a, a kind of a, a reconciling of, of of abuse or persecution in the past and a healing of that unless you have uh, truth, the full truth of the situation. Um, and part of, I mean, part of the uh, the core question around homosexuality and gay pride and gay rights, etc., uh, is to do with truth, but it's never been spoken. I don't know if it will ever be spoken or if it's even possible for it to be spoken, but the uh, the core um, debate, I think, that is behind the scenes here is whether or not homosexuality is genetic or a function of upbringing. Uh, there have been plenty, plenty of studies done, plenty of uh, research has been done into that, but it's always inconclusive, and I think it has to remain always inconclusive, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I think there's, for me anyway, uh, I don't think they've ever found, if you were to, if you wanted to come to a tentative conclusion about the nature or, or the source of, or the nature of, of homosexuality. Um, there haven't been, I don't think they've found any kind of a genetic, actual genetic marker. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's been a genetic, a gene found that um, is a homosexual gene, essentially. No, I think it's largely anecdotal when right. gay people just 
all they can say is it just seems to me I was born that way. I've, right. That's all I've, I've known. Right. In my well, earliest experiences. So that's where you look into uh, kind of a modern cognitive psychology and um, and, the, and the development of the brain in early childhood and the different kind of uh, windows, uh, imprinting windows as they're called, etc. Uh, that can uh, there's suggestion that can that determine uh, human sexuality, and that at certain points in time, uh, certain windows in early early childhood, um, sexuality can be determined uh, based on experiences had by the by the child imprinting. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's obviously it's a it's a fairly complex topic as well. But when you consider the number, the amount of of child abuse that goes on, or the statistics on child abuse uh, that that are available, that point to a high level of ch- a high a high percentage of children in any family uh, being abused by one or other parent. I think uh, there, were, there were statistics from the U.S. that showed that up to fifty percent of girls. Are in some way sexually abused oh. uh, in childhood, and thirty-three percent of boys. Uh, so I think that is is well, it's obviously horrible, but it should be considered as a as a possible, given given the other kind of evidence or research into these kind of imprinting windows, whether there is a possible. Um, situation where uh, uh, sexuality can be <clears throat> can be determined in that way based on certain experiences in childhood that can be um, created effectively yeah. you know um, See, and, and, but even then I mean you can't turn around and say that it can be flipped or something that homosexuality is a flip because uh, or a deviation from the norm because that 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 applies equally to heterosexuality as well mm-hmm. uh, in that um most people are, let's say, heterosexual because because they had a particular type of experience when they were a child. Um, but there's a smaller number of uh, incidents where children have the opposite experience as a child, and that leads to homosexuality. But both of them are created effectively. So when we would say, if, if I was to suggest that homosexuality is created as a result of childhood experiences at an imprinting stage in childhood, uh, that's not to say that... Uh, that's not saying that homosexuality is some kind of a, a psychological illness any more than heterosexuality is, mm. right? But it's still something that needs to be... And that's, this is, I'm, t- I'm saying all this from the, from the point of view of uh, the idea about truth, you know? That this, for me, this is truth, you know? Uh, when I talk about truth over the, this debate about gay, gay rights and uh, legalizing gay marriage, etc., it's far too simplistic just to call it a, an, an equality issue, you know? Uh, because it has implications for um, society and uh, the type of uh, society we'll have in terms of the family unit and people, the way children were brought up and stuff, and the effect on child a child psychology in early childhood. Um, and that's very important for society as those children grow up into adults, because it's going to shape a, a whole population potentially. You know, or um, I'm not just talking about homosexuality here, but I'm talking about child abuse, you know, and the way that it, the kind of adults it creates later on in 
in life. So it's a very complex and very, but a very important yeah. topic to deal with because you're talking about the functioning of society, you know, how it operates and how people think and how they act and what they, you know, their, their, their kind of basic makeup, essentially, their yeah. psychological makeup. And that angle alone right there is by people into, oh, you're saying it's a deviancy. Well, no, because your starting point is the abuse in a, in a quote-unquote normal family. Mm. Mother and father, biological parents yeah. of the child. It, with Even just emotional neglect doesn't have to be any, they don't have to be any outward signs of abuse of any kind. Mm-hmm. Emotional neglect is enough to interfere with what would otherwise have been a different path of imprinting mm-hmm. that results in the situation. Uh, I, I've, I can, I know, I know of stories where uh, gay couples adopt children and they are raised happily. They live normal lives. They are straight themselves. They go on and do different things. There are obviously stories to the contrary as well. Mm-hmm. But Jesus Christ, it's the same with any heterosexual family. <laughs> we have experiences with families that we all come from families that uh, were disturbed in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the origin of fault and blame. Mm-hmm. is so complex as to be out of this world. Mm-hmm. There is none to be found here. Mm-hmm. The ease with which you can take a hard and fast rule and answer and blame someone is totally contradicted by the direct interpersonal experiences. And we all have different stories. I mean, um, one of the saddest for me is a guy, uh, He was he was older than me, but he was kind of friend of the family, their, one of their sons was gay. And uh, it was it was still 1990s Ireland, so he wouldn't have been, you know, openly wearing it on a sleeve or anything. He just got on with, with life. And he was a teacher, I think, a special needs teacher, and uh, went out of his way to be seen as a good person in the community. He'd volunteer to help uh, with school projects, with community activities. Um, there was absolutely no, no uh, bad rep. Nothing bad was attached to his reputation. No one ever said anything bad about him. But his inner torment uh, it led to some bad relationship when he was in his late twenties, and he killed himself. Mm. And it was a shock to everyone because you know. Why? Why would he do that? That, I think, in this story, it's the it's part of the pain that someone like that, who is so different in their inner makeup, mm. trying to understand and to exist, coexist in a mm. world where people are different. Uh, when you have good people like that, how on earth can we come down hard on them? No, you shouldn't, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, at the very beginning, it should never have been the case. This is obviously asking for something that obviously isn't possible, has never been possible, but there should never have been a situation in any society where anybody, because of their sexual orientation, was discriminated against or should made or was made to feel that they were they were an outcast or felt persecuted or discriminated against because of that. That should never have happened. You know, and I mean, it's it, a normal society and for normal humans, that's not a problem. You know, um, it, it's dealt with, you know, it's one of the complexities of, of, 
of the human experience that needs to be dealt with, but it can be dealt with, you know? Um, but the problem is now that the fact that that happened, okay, so people, there is no ideal, there hasn't been an ideal human society, so that homosexuals were persecuted for a long time. Uh, so now there is a justified grievance, but in an effort not to go to the other extreme or to go to a point where you're going to create uh, other negative repercussions for society, don't push that persecution complex so far. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, what I'm saying here is for the for the gay community, there's a responsibility. There should be a responsibility not to, to take stock of the situation and not let the persecution complex uh, lead to uh, the creation of other social ills. And for everybody to sit down and have a reasonable, rational, reasonable, rational, rational uh, conversation about it, and but you know that's probably not going to happen. But that's it's not going to happen because, like everyone, they're subject to masters at divide and rule. Yeah, who seeing a division among groups of people just exploit it. They, it's in their own nature. And there we do openly talk about a deviancy in their nature. Yeah. They're prone to psychopathy. Some of them are probably born that way. Yeah. And pushing it to the other extreme, an example of pushing it to the other extreme is what you mentioned a little bit earlier on where people were protesting in France a few years ago about the introduction of uh, all sorts of new uh, teaching methods and uh, based on something called gender theory. Gender theory, basically, that where it says that you know, you're not um, necessarily, not only is your sexuality not defined, but neither is your neither is your gender, as in um, a boy. Try and keep it open with children for as long as possible. An anatomically male boy yeah. should not be forced to believe he is actually a male. Uh, I mean, this is an example of pushing it too far, you know, and especially when we're talking about a very small percentage of the population, you have to start to wonder is there an agenda that's why you get these conspiracy theories about people saying that there's an agenda to make us all gay you know because they see these kind of things they, they say well it's 3.8 percent of the population in the u.s for example and yet uh, somehow this has got into the national schools curriculum where it's applying to all children the other 96 plus percent of children uh, are being uh, yeah are being uh, in, to some extent maybe not indoctrinated but they're being uh, actively informed about the possibility uh, that they may not be a boy, yeah. or they may not be a girl, and they and they may also and e- not be. Even when once they know, uh, uh, since a couple of years now, uh, on one day in France, all school children, so teenage boys, for example, um, have been having a wearing a skirt day, right? Where they go into class, the boys dressed as girls just to see what it's like from the other side. <laughs> Think about that for a second. You're going to be able to get a guy to see, if you experience the inner world of what it is to be a female, by having him wear a skirt. You've got to be kidding. As if human psychology could be reduced to such a, a gimmick. You know, the, there are some things that are just hardwired and, and it's, it's prob- this probably is hard why women and men think differently. Um, and there's probably all sorts of other complexities once you have gay men and gay women. And then people who are absolutely certain that they're born inside 
that they do experience the inner world of what it is to be the opposite sex, but they're born inside the body of uh, the wrong sex. Um, I, I'm fairly convinced that that is, however it originated, it's a real condition. It's a real condition, but, that, but it has to be recognized as a condition and not, not something that's quote-unquote normal. Because by the, by the, they themselves are admitting that there's something going wrong there. Right, unless you're going to draw on some claim of the diversity of creation that wants to create a kind of a, you know, a, a man and a woman's body, you know. I mean, why would, that's, by, by definition, that's not not normal, let's say, right? Why would it happen? Why would the universe, why would creation subject someone to that? If a, if a person is fundamentally female, you put them in a female body. You don't give them, put them in a male body and let them be tormented their whole life with trying to, anatomically or, or surgically change their body to I mean th- that I, for I me, hear you for me that's by definition not no. uh, uh, it's a it's a psychological slash physical uh, medical issue essentially no it's something that I, I guess but when you say this is this is how thorny it is when you say that's not normal they hear that and that is a discriminatory stance Towards them. Why? Well, well but that's that's a knee-jerk because, reaction. Because just because you're uh, saying something if, isn't normal doesn't mean you're discriminating you, against it. Yeah, if you listen to some of the statements, um, just people interviewed on the streets in Ireland as a result, the the relief they expressed that finally we're in normal, finally we're in normal society, and we're that th- this is what. This is what it's it's we're, it's going to be more complex, but this is something about them that wants this to be normal, you know? And but but does that but does that include accept no, does that include not feeling sympathy for those people? If I if I meet I mean I I know someone who is essentially transgender and I feel sympathy for him and because he has a hard time and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. If he could have it any other way, he he would have it another way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't by saying that it's not normal. It doesn't mean that I discriminate against him. Like it's not. We're not talking about eugenics here, but I'm recognizing the fact that there's something not, not right there, and that he himself is unhappy about it, and has to go through a life of hormone therapy and surgery, painful surgery. Get something that that he uh, he thinks should have happened naturally. Should, that shouldn't shouldn't he shouldn't have to do. That he should have been born a different way. All the words that they use, if you talk to anybody in that situation, suggests that it's not normal. But conflating not saying it's not normal with discrimination is totally wrong. I'm ah, sure a lot of people sure. who say that that's not normal do discriminate, but that's not where we're coming from. We're simply trying to get at the truth of the matter here because that's how I think people in these situations will be able to live uh, the happiest life they can if everybody is appraised of the truth and recognizes the truth of it. And you get rid of any kind of discrimination and just, I mean, the truth isn't discriminatory, you know, as long as you're able to accept it. And, and I mean, discrimination comes from an individual uh, bias and prejudice that is part of it that person's own messed up nature. 
you know, there's nothing about anything in nature that is abnormal in the sense of that it should be, you know, wiped away or with the exception of psychopaths, maybe, but even then, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, I freely admit that the problem is, is bias and prejudice among the heterosexual community who are just, who are, who are bigots and who are, uh, you know, who have, who have their own psychological issues where they can't accept anybody who's different. But if you, I mean, ideally you would get rid of that and then come to a debate or a discussion about it that will be based on as far as possible, as is humanly possible to achieve the truth of the situation. Everybody recognizes, everybody admits it, and then everybody contributes to doing the best that is possible for society as a whole uh, with those with those conditions or those situations or those uh, circumstances. Yeah, idealism. Yeah, it's wonderful. But I mean, that's yeah. You know, it's a fo- the whole thing's a phony debate. I just feel like it's all been a bit a massive setup. You know, absolutely. Um, Another person from across the pond to chip in with her support was Miley Cyrus, who tweets, "Excuse my French. Fuck yeah, Ireland." Now here, here you have someone who's clearly some kind of sexual deviant, probably psychopathic, certainly brain damaged, drug addled. Uh, I don't care what her sexuality is. Uh, w- what does she have such a strong opinion one way or the other? <laughs> Miley Cyrus, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Post a girl. Do you, Post you a girl. want her to be at the center of any moral discussion? No. <laughs> she can be a role model for your teenage daughters, you know? Um, yeah, it's a whole liberal thing, you know? Anything goes, infiltrates into this. You know, the yeah. Western, particularly U.S., promoted uh, NGO, open society, you know, everything's acceptable. Everything's, let's just embrace everything, you know? Yeah. And they push that on people as a way to achieve another agenda. Yeah. That they're not telling you about. And that's why we're advocating that people should consider this issue very carefully and be, uh, think, you know, think hard about it and look into the specifics of it and not be carried along in a wave of euphoria that is a, just a simple, comfortable narrative that you're telling yourself so you can feel better. I mean, if you're going to be a responsible member of society and contribute to society in any way, you, you have to think about things and not be carried along with... Uh, political agendas and that's exactly what this is it's a political agenda more than anything else anyway yeah like well we didn't solve any problems there no but at least we opened it up a little bit for that's a bit more nuanced than it's being presented yeah and and we're not getting carried away i think the important thing is context you know, people, the same politicians who are grandstanding on the stage with all of you pro-gay rights activists or pro-equality activists are then going back to the office to arrange a meeting that will involve signing off on warships, blowing immigrants, trying to escape a desperate situation in Africa that those same people created. So uh, what we would encourage people is to try to tease out the the issue that involves real people and their own um Moral stances, however way they, they, they ultimately fall on any issue. Right. Don't look separated from those who are completely incapable of yeah. morality. Who have no moral They're not stances. with you. They're, immor- they're amoral, yeah. I mean, just one more point. They, uh, 
the same, the British government obviously was, you know, applauding the Irish referendum vote, etc. But this is the same Conservative government who uh, is going ahead with cuts of £12 billion to the welfare system, continuing complete destruction of the British national healthcare system and welfare system in, in the UK. Uh, and these are cuts that will impact most heavily on the poorest and most vulnerable, in particular those with disabilities or in need of social care. So these are politicians who are saying, yes, it's equality, it's a, it's a shining beacon of equality and rights for all. And once they've finished uh, spewing those words, they'll turn around and carry on with their uh, evisceration of the welfare system and the national health system in, in the UK that uh, is going to severely impact vulnerable, uh, uh, the poorest and most vulnerable people, and particularly those people with disabilities. I mean, how can you square those two things? I mean, these people are obviously just, uh, they're just, uh, I don't know. I have no words for such people that I can say publicly. Anyway, um, moving on to other things that have been going on the past few weeks. Um, the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, it's interesting that it happened at exactly the, the same, same time. time. I know. And you have last year, you had Conchita Worst on an opening for our American listeners. There's a Eurovision Song Contest that has been going on for about, uh, oh, about 5,000 years now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every year they have a group of supposedly amateur musicians from each country that are selected internally in each country by a popular vote and they get forwarded to the Eurovision uh, uh, Song Contest. That happens uh, in some European capital usually each year. Not, a, not necessarily capital, but uh, in each country each, each year. Well, yeah, the, the winner the, the of winner, the last... Well, how did it start? They obviously picked someone obviously to begin with. Yeah. But then each year the winners from last year host the one this year yeah. and then the, the winners of the national competition go, go ahead uh, to a European song contest where they sing their songs and it's all lots of uh, uh, flashing lights and fanfare and screaming people and stuff. And, and uh, terrible music. And terrible, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun and crass and crap. Uh, it's, it's, it's political fun, as well. It's political. They, all, they all vote for each other. You know. They, I think it was rigged. I think Russia, was, Russia ended up in the final with Sweden and they were beaten to it by Swedish entry. Yeah, Russia came second. But it's, it's, it's done by popular votes, so anyone can text in, call in, and they vote, and they add up the votes. Think about it. Russia's got a population of 200 million. They should win every year. Yeah. <laughs> they came so close to winning this year, their own people would have pushed it over. But then they'd be ending up with the Eurovision Song Contest being held in Russia next year, and that was absolutely no yeah. way that was going to happen. Because, of course, the running theme the last few years has been... It kind of crept in, but last year was... We crept in a few years ago when the Israeli contestant won, and she was a transvestite. Yeah. And then last year, another transvestite won from Austria. Conchita Worst. Conchita Worst. This is a man dressed as a woman with a beard, though, sporting a beard. A beard. And uh, so Vienna held the event, and, you know, this year. Tongue in cheek, but also, you know, okay. Uh, they did things in the city like. Um, they changed traffic light signs so instead of a yeah. man or a woman crossing the road as pedestrian signs they, they had, had two men holding hands or something they had homosexual traffic lights homosexual traffic lights equal equal rights traffic lights equal rights traffic lights um, so and there's in recent years there's been a very strong kind of a yeah gay pride kind of angle to this Eurovision Song Contest um, 
Um, but it's interesting that it happened right, right at the same time. This year there was uh, one of the entrants had men and women, men and men and women and women kiss, kissing on stage and stuff. You know, it's all fine, but, you know, like, yeah, just refer back to what we said in the past hour and hopefully you'll understand. Anyway, um, speaking of Russia, uh, Putin just recently signed a new law banning undesirable organizations from existing or from uh, operating in Russia. He signed a bill uh, allowing prosecutors to ban undesirable foreign and international organizations from operating in Russia. I guess with the response from the Western open society, liberal, you know, equal rights uh, gang was to that. The, the response of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International branded the move part of an ongoing draconian crackdown, which is squeezing the life out of civil society. Civil society being... Being their domain. Well, being the US, US State Department's uh, uh, term for allowing <clears throat> front organizations into foreign countries to provoke demonstrations and overthrow a government. Um, and of course, David Liddington, the Minister for Europe at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, this is the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, said that this is yet another example of the Russian authorities' harassment of NGOs and those who work with them in Russia. The new law will directly affect the ability of international organizations to work, promote and protect human rights in Russia. And it's clearly aimed at undermining the work of Russian civil society. Again, civil society. <laughs> Russian civil society. I mean, they have this term. Haven't they got work to do at home? Exactly. Well, this is the British, uh, British minister saying that this law passed by the Russian government about you know, <clears throat> life in Russia will directly affect the ability of international organizations to work, promote, and protect human rights in Russia. And by international organizations, he means British and American organizations. So he's annoyed that Russia is stopping British and American front organizations from, quote-unquote, protecting human rights in Russia by attempting to overthrow the Russian government. He didn't say that, but that's, that's exactly that's what, what it means. So, um, you know, take a hike there, Minister Boy. Uh, and another... Uh, I'll just I'll go through it quickly because I'd like to come back to Russia, but um, there were protests in four four hundred cities globally against um, Monsanto, specifically against their promotion of GMOs. It's another single single issue, you know, where that's a lot of organizations. I mean, four hundred cities simultaneously. It's definitely a worthy cause to get up and say no to. But I suspect, if not Monsanto, I suspect the real players behind a company like that are more than happy for people to take single-issue things like GMOs and protest all they want about them. The pe people have got to just remember, it's okay, it's a multinational company, but not really. MNCs is really a modern euphemism for companies that are dependent on the United States government foreign policy. So when you're protesting Monsanto and GMOs, you're protesting U.S. government policy. Europeans lost track of that when they initially blocked GMOs from entering into Europe and now are, have started to allow it. What ordinary Europeans don't understand is that they're allowing it now because the U.S. is strong-arming in negotiations with uh, Brussels 
and individual countries like Germany and France uh, as regards this transatlantic trade blah, blah, partnership, which is basically an attempt to lock down Europe into an Atlantic American-controlled infrastructure. That's kind of all left out, of course. But you see that when you protest GMOs, you don't understand you're protesting Washington policy. I wouldn't branch off and put your energy into that one thing. Stick with the bigger picture. It's 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 totally related to what Amnesty International, which is really a U.S. or slash British organization, is doing in Russia. It, it, the two are not separate, you know. Um, on the Russia front, uh, Norway is now Western Europe's largest supplier of gas. They are trying hard to, um, what's the word, decouple or uh, move themselves away from the, decrease their dependency on Russian resources. I I don't think they'll get very far with it because there's only so much Norway can do for their Western Europe. They still have this massive elephant in the room, which is that Europe does not have sufficient energy needs, it needs to get it from somewhere. The choice remains geographical. It's either Russia or it's the Middle East. Mm. So, Well, as soon as the US produces its 6,000 kilometer long LNG uh, undersea pipeline, you know, from, uh, I don't know, Connecticut or something to, uh, to Ireland might be the closest stop-off point. As soon as they get that underway, then, you know, I believe that they can divest from Russian gas. But divest, until, that's uh, the word. But until then... In um, 2050, maybe. It'll be all she wrote by then, because at the rate China is building train lines and energy pipelines across Kazakhstan in Russia proper, uh, it'll be all over by then. I mean, obviously, you can only build things so fast, but they're doing things fast, the deals are piling up one after the other. So, yeah, they probably, they only get hasty with that um, magical supply line of fracked gas. It won't happen anyway. The U.S., as we're seeing from public backlash in the U.S., even local authorities are concerned with so many earthquakes going off that fracking is just, uh, it's pretty much run its course. They'll continue to drive stuff into the ground, but uh it's not going to go anywhere. Um, the situation in Eastern Europe, you've probably noticed that um, another Eastern European country is undergoing a bit of a color revolution right now. That's Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is a tiny country of 2 million people. Uh, the last of the Balkan states that was in the former Yugoslav Republic to get this kind of treatment, if you like. Uh, I think what's tipping it is that after the Bulgarians via John McCain and a quick call to Brussels put the kibosh on another pipeline bypassing Ukraine and instead going to Bulgaria and then into Eastern Europe, the Russians of course agreed with Turkey that it would go across the Black Sea into Turkey and then Greece. Macedonia <laughs> Well, kind of like we predicted, they they read that well and they said, oh, that's interesting. That means it has to come up through us. And they started building work. They made a deal with Russia on the side, anticipating this terminal that would go into Turkey, eventually extending up through Greece and into Macedonia. 
And I think what we're seeing in Macedonia right now is the U.S. response to the Russian response, which is to stir up as much shit as possible in Macedonia and get the right regime in there. So simultaneously, you give headaches to Greece, which is the neighbor. Of course, the European Union. I mean, is there going to be another major flare-up of violence in Macedonia? Probably not. It's not such a... Mm, not such a big country as Ukraine, but it's definitely got some serious racial tension issues because a large part of its population is ethnic Albanian, which is Muslim. So once again, it's all about the Balkans. It's a hundred year pattern. It's amazing how the Balkans is like repeatedly a fracture zone That's for because, Western powers. Well, too. because it's a, it's the dividing line between Historically, the dividing line between Western Europe and Russia and the Middle East, you know, it's a it's a fracture zone, yeah, where um, it's a buffer zone, essentially. It's been used as a buffer zone in this, you know, century or centuries-long uh, conflict, effectively, between, uh, originally between empires, you know, the Russian, the Russian Empire and Eurasian empires or Eurasian peoples against uh, Western Europe and then later the U.S. Um, but, uh, yeah, the the... the Potential color revolution in Macedonia seems to have been, according to some people, as being directed from a NATO base or partly directed from a NATO base uh, in, in Kosovo, Camp Bonsteel, which played a, a major part yeah. in the Yugoslav, the bombing, NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. Isn't it their uh, largest it, base in, in Europe? Yeah. Period? Yeah, it has Massa. more than 7,000 troops in it. So uh, that's right over the border in, in Kosovo from Macedonia. And there, there were some Macedonian uh, po- a Macedonian politician actually who said that specifically that those, uh, the most recent event where certain um, armed individuals came in and started attacking Macedonian police, that they came directly from uh, Kosovo and, and, and Camp Bonsteel and they... You know, it's the the what do you call it? The um, the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, which is just basically a just a name for a proxy NATO uh, armed group that's used to uh, that was used in Yugoslavia and is apparently has been uh, retooled and is uh, is being used today to try and stir up trouble in Macedonia and create the conditions for mm. another color revolution. Uh, specifically, as Neil was saying, there to to throw a, a monkey wrench in the works um, over the possible uh, gas pipeline from uh, Russia through Turkey, mm. through Greece, into Macedonia, and on up into Europe. So the US is desperately trying to thwart or stop the um, Russia from finding alternative routes uh, for its gas to Europe. So it's this titanic struggle going on between the U.S. and Russia, with at this stage kind of Europe being all uh, be, being what is uh, what is in play essentially, you know, European countries are, are in play, uh, are the Western European and the West, all of Europe, uh, Western Eastern European landmass. The EU is is being fought over by the U.S. and Russia, with the U.S. taking a very much a, a an aggressive, proactive approach, and Russia being a bit more smart about the whole thing and relying simply on its natural resources effectively and its natural uh, the, the, the real politic or the, the facts on the ground being that, listen, 
we have what Europe wants and you don't. So what are you going to do? And yeah, the US will try to do everything it possibly can, but it's fighting against uh, hard facts here. And uh, But that never stopped the US in the past, you know. Facts are funny things. They are what I say they are. From the conspiracy corner this week, uh, a couple of humorous pieces from veterans today. Um, U.S.-backed terror group planning nuke attack on dot, 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 U.S. I mean, that's thought about George Bush and his gang. They're going to nuke us, you know. It's Who, ISIL. ISIL, yeah. ISIS, ISIL, IS are going to, yeah, they say they're going to buy a buy some nukes from Pakistan. Yeah. And they're going Pakistan, to... Pakistan, which is 100% CIA and my six controlled, by the way. If it does come from there, you'll know where it came from. It's just scaremongering. Um, <clears throat> what's the latest in Operation Jade Helm? Oh, just, are they coming to get us yet? Just before Jade Helm, but US, staying in the US, um, major protests going on off and on. I mean, um, yeah. American listeners probably know more about it than we do just now, but I, I read here that yet last night, 71 people were arrested in Cleveland mm-hmm. um, after a cop was found not guilty for shooting dead yet another unarmed black man and a woman yeah. in a high-speed car chase back in 2012. Right. So you see, and that's the whole case now, 2012 is three years ago. But, yeah, but it takes that long. It, well, it takes that long, but when it comes to uh, there's some kind of decision in a court case or whatever, people are now primed because yeah, they're, they're testing it. And it takes one little, but this one is, thing and there's a mass, you know. There's probably loads, around. probably dozens of those cases that are still brewing and waiting yeah. to be released. You know, this one was, uh, yeah, it was a, these two, two a black, uh, a man and a woman, uh, got, who were just pulled over by cops uh, because they, I think, a tra- some kind of traffic violation. And they pulled over, but then when the cop approached the car, they just took off. Um, so that ended up, I think, in something like 60 police cars were <laughs> involved in a chase then. Just, just find their car. address and call them later and say, listen, you're going to have to. Right, yeah. Or call, you know. Call. Try some reason. Yeah, <laughs> but they got 60 cars and obviously they're all pumped up. You know, the cops are, you know, thinking that this is, you know, World War Three is just broken out, you know. And um, they're all stoked for the chase and because uh, their authority wasn't respected you didn't respect my authority how dare you not stop for my tra- for my authority so uh, 60 cars end up chasing them and one they one cop then just they're shooting at the car they eventually stop the car one cop runs over you know he must have he's watching too many Hollywood movies jumps up on the on the hood of the car and shoots at more or less point blank range in through the windscreen 15 times and these two were unarmed, just yeah. sitting in their car. Because they basically fled from cops, that uh, made them... Um, Punishable by su- death. Subject to s- summary execution. Yeah, there's no... <clears throat> there's no... Shoot first and I mean, ask questions later. There was a time in the USSR where you could be arrested for insulting your employer and because he would report you and next thing you're shot dead. But at least there you um, went to some kind of nominal judicial process, if only just officially processed stamps, thumbprints, sign a piece of paper, and then you were taken out to a, a ready-made grave and you were shot. 
at least the uh, Eagle Soviets were disciplined about it. In the US, modern style totalitarianism just is, it's a whole other level. Mm. We're just, we're just going to shoot you That's on nice. the street in full view. Everyone's recording it. Good. Mm. There's another case just recently of a video came out that's on YouTube of, I uh, can't remember exactly where this was, but it was a guy, another, again, a, a black guy who, he basically, they didn't say exactly what his medical emergency was, but he had a medical emergency while he was driving his car, probably some kind of, maybe some kind of a mild heart attack or something that basically made him kind of incapacitated or incapacitated him. Uh, so his car, he basically, his car rolled in, in into another car and then across the road and hit the median division or, uh, line or something. And uh, so he was just kind of sitting there in his car after just knocking into this other car and hitting the midway uh, sex, section in the road and he um, the cops were called and they arrived <clears throat> and <clears throat> they go over to the guy his window was down and he um, they're shouting at him but he's unable to respond so instead of thinking okay this guy might be uh, might be in in, in medical trouble, they uh, taser him a couple of times and spray mace in his face for like about five or six seconds, like directly in his face, and then drag him out of the car. And the guy was actually having, probably having a heart attack. So he got tased, but and that was because he was unresponsive, you know, he was just sitting in his car unresponsive, couldn't really say anything. So they said, okay, this is obviously a, a serious threat. To my life, I need to tase this guy. Lucky he didn't get shot, you know. If you do respond, you're resisting arrest, yeah. then you get tased. One yeah. or the other. It's going to be a long, hot summer in the U.S. Yeah, especially with Jade Helm. Nobody knows what Jade Helm is, really, you know. Well, we had we had a, a listener write into us there a couple of weeks ago, telling us we got it all wrong about Jade Helm and something to do with. Jade being a code word for the Chinese. What right, is that yes, about? Chinese. It's this. Somebody is. This is a Chinese covert operation. The UN and the Chinese are coming to disarm Americans. Somebody's pumping that bullshit out there just deliberately to muddy the waters and hype people up. It's just so hysterical and so ridiculous, and there's no evidence for it. And in doing that, they miss the real implications and the real story. But it's not a. It's not a hysterical enough story. So they don't. They don't want to. They're not interested. You know. Um, I mean, Jade Helm is these exercises starting in July fifteenth for three months or two months. July, August, yeah, two, for two months until July uh, until September fifteenth. Um, it's not good. It's worrying. It's troubling. You know that you would. Have there's not a lot of troops involved officially. There's maybe 1,500 troops involved over six southern states, I think. Uh, certain there was a paper released, uh, some kind of a, a document about uh, the planning for for this operation, and it naming had, towns and at certain states as the kind of enemy state, and another few states were a permissive state. And one of the states that was the enemy state was uh, was Texas. Um. So this was just part of their planning for the operation, and it's supposedly meant to be just, um, it is, I think, just part of um, the ongoing uh, operations that the U.S. military has been engaged in on American soil for a long time, where they're effectively 
training troops for urban warfare and probably, you know, officially for overseas, but, you know, quietly with an eye to it happening in the U.S. You know, because there's there's no doubt whatsoever that governments around the world, particularly in the West, are for some reason preparing and planning for urban warfare. They're, pl- they're training policemen and military personnel for civil unrest. Our own local newspaper this week describes a police exercise right. in which um, they simulated urban. a breakout of urban warfare Violence. in a small town of 50,000 people. Yeah. I mean, they're preparing for something. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's an infection or it's a kind of a meme that's spreading and has been spreading for a long time amongst governments in, in the Western world in particular that someone is somewhere, some group of people in these governments are worried about urban violence, like civil unrest specifically. You know, and the, there, was a, there was a report in The Guardian last year about a leaked document uh, from the Pentagon that it was, uh, that it was had funded all sorts of studies and research into um, into the kind of the social nature of uh, of, of, of civil unrest, specifically um, why some people don't become violent but support uh, you know resistance groups, etc. They posited that you've got these resistance groups who take up arms against a local government, uh, but there is a big population there to support them who don't. And what those people, trying to analyze them, psychoanalyze them essentially and understand why these people do this. And the other part was um, uh, the tipping point on social media where social media activism uh, starts brewing and starts generating and, and they were attempting to define that tipping point where it goes from social activism on Facebook and Twitter and stuff, and then where that spills over into the streets and what that tipping point is, you know. Uh, of course, when they're doing that, they're probably using that to try and learn how to effectively do that themselves, not fight against it, but maybe fight against it in the case of the U.S. But in foreign countries, obviously, the U.S. government is very much interested in provoking people on social media, etc., uh, to go over that tipping point and stage mass demonstrations to overthrow governments like in Ukraine. If you put that in the right order, actually the foreign was the testing ground for what they now say is we're trying to see the the tipping points. Well, they have a damn good idea because they've been practicing it for 10 years in other countries. Well, they've been doing it in other countries, yeah. But in the U.S. US, they would be looking to either stage manage it themselves or prevent it from happening, be on top of it to stop it happening in the U.S. Because, you know, the rule is you know, social revolutions and open society uh, and equal rights, etc., are, it's all good in foreign countries where we want to get a foothold, but not in the U.S., not back home. No, no, um, no Twitter campaigns, please, we're American. Oh, on the other hand, there's not an element of a managed color revolution to what's happening in the U.S. Well, yeah. I mean, it could be. certain themes going around. That's what I mean. They want to understand it either to prevent it from happening or maybe more likely to stage manage it and to you know, orchestrate, orchestrate it themselves in the same way that they have largely orchestrated them in foreign countries like most notably in Ukraine last year. I mean, uh, the U.S. government and it's... Uh, oh, everywhere. Cuba, Moldova... Well, yeah, Kyrgyzstan, but I mean, Romania, in, they've done it dozens in, of times. Well, of course they've done it, but I'm talking about last year in Ukraine. Mm. Most recently, they did in Ukraine, and they were all over 
um, that entire uh, social media campaign. I mean, documents have come out now to show that uh, they had set up all sorts of uh, cyber training, uh, kind of cyber training uh, classes for activists, uh, Ukrainian activists and open society anti anti-government activists to teach them how to effectively use uh, Facebook and Twitter <clears throat> to um, to put together a, a, a protest campaign. Uh, and this was all funded directly by uh, US government, quote-unquote, NGOs and uh, personnel. So... They're yeah they're well versed in doing it uh, in other countries. They know how to they know how to make it happen. So the question is, um, are they going to do the same thing in the U.S.? They can do the same thing very easily in the U.S. where they effectively <clears throat> control it. Of course, uh, in the U.S. it's slightly different in the sense that in other countries you just let it happen, you know, and you're not really concerned about the outcome. But in the U.S. it's something that you have to deal with yourself. There's more to think of in terms of where you're going with this, ultimately. Uh, they're happy to overthrow a government in other countries, but in the U.S. they wouldn't necessarily be talking about overthrowing a government. Uh, the government wouldn't necessarily be overthrowing itself. They would be, well, they be creating social chaos. sacrifice the public face. The government the U.S. thinks controls, but the, oh, the yeah. real government would be yeah. to the side. So... Um, yeah, so that's what Jade people, Helm, are, people are conflating that with kind of Jade Helm, you know, that it's a, it's a part of a plan to institute martial law, to disarm Americans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But on the face of it, it just looks like another one of these many um, military training exercises that have happened uh, in the U.S. in different places uh, over the past, well, forever, really. Um, people are right to be to have to be alarmed about the extent that it's a well, larger it's, operation. It's the biggest one that officially the biggest one they've ever done. Uh-huh. And there are other movements as well. There's something called direct or rapid something. There was a movement of 1,600 troops and tanks in Colorado, which was out of the ordinary. Local press reported on it. Independent of Jade Helm is taking place right now. There are other troop movements. There are other drills. Drills are going on all the time. At some executive level, the, this Jade Helm type drills <clears throat> probably dovetail with managing Twitter revolutions in the U.S. Well, uh, they think or they hope. Um, yeah, just be aware, keep an eye. It's unlikely martial law would come from this specific operation. It could, though. No, but it's. I mean, it's scary in the sense that you're going to have across, <clears throat> a lot of it's going to happen across, you know, rural areas, but it's also going to happen in urban areas. And you're going to have nighttime flights of uh, military planes, uh, helicopters. You're going to have troops uh, running around the streets. Not Like we said, not a large number, but uh, maybe officially 1,500 military personnel, including some Marines and, uh, sorry, Green Berets and Navy SEALs. Um, and... The idea is to infiltrate and exfiltrate uh, personnel and uh, equipment into areas and back out of areas. So it's all part of standard kind of officially standard training. And part of the training they're testing is that they go unspotted by the local population. 
Right, that's part of it is to uh, so that they can operate <clears throat> incognito. And uh, like we mentioned in a previous show, I think uh, they've asked uh, for people, ordinary people in certain cities to um, try and identify, try and see if they notice anything uh, unusual, which would be spotting these uh, uh, plainclothes military personnel. So the whole thing is just kind of unnerving, if you can imagine it happening where you are. Um, this is not the kind of thing you'd want in your local community or in your local city or town. Um, it's just, it, it points directly to a real militarization of, of society effectively and conditioning the American people to things that really are uh, unacceptable and should not be happening in in civil society, if we can use that term. So, um, but yeah, it's... Uh, on that, on that, to that extent, it's it's normal, which is absolutely not normal, but it's normal these days in a militarized, burgeoning police state like the U.S. But there exists the possibility for something to happen, because effectively this is a drill, uh, similar to drills that have happened at other times when there have been so-called terror attacks. So it's possible that um, there may be some kind of an actual, supposedly real event slash terror attack. Uh, in, in one of these areas at the time when this these jail helm exercises are ongoing. Uh, so if there's a possibility for some kind of a, a crisis to occur this uh, summer, it may well happen during these jail helm exercises, but it won't be uh, it won't be the reason or the, the jail helm exercises won't be the origin of any kind of a, 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 a crisis or a terror attack or a clampdown or a lockdown or some kind of martial law. Uh, to have that, you need to have an actual, as we've seen so many times in the past, you need that to have, or in, for that to happen, you need to have an actual so-called terror attack. And we noticed that in the past few months, uh, authorities in the U.S. have been talking about ISIS or ISIL or whatever operating potentially in all uh, 50 American states that they have a presence in all 50 American states. So they're making noises about ISIL and ISIS uh, prior to their announcement of uh, what amounts to a two-month-long military drill across six southern U.S. states. So you put all of that together, and you don't come up with a very clear picture, but you come up with what effectively amounts to opportunity for something to happen that would uh, open the door to the next stage of uh, the kind of police statification of America. Does 50 states include Alaska? Uh, yeah. So watch out for ISIS types there. Instead of wearing all black hoodies and stuff, they're going to wear all white. You see, they'll blend in with the snow and stuff. Exactly. Be careful. You're wearing polar bear suits. <laughs> uh, speaking of ISIS, uh, confirmation for those who may have been wavering in doubt. A secret Pentagon report reveals that the West saw ISIS as a strategic asset, not threat. This is a detailed article based on leaked information by Nafiz Ahmed. He's the journalist who used to vote for The Guardian. Still does. I think he was fired for being too much of a journalist. Well, he, I think he's well, yeah, not he, independent he wrote, now. He had that he wrote that report I mentioned last year in 2004 about the Pentagon doing those studies on, in 2014. Yeah, I think he was fired. After that. Uh, so yeah, uh, 
from the get-go, but in their own words, uh, ISIS is and always will be an asset. What it means is that it serves well, officially this US government policy. The most, the, the first this report goes is saying that they knew that it was going to happen effectively. They could see that um, through the their support, the US support, and the Gulf state support of Al-Qaeda types, of Al-Qaeda and, uh, and Syrian rebel types, uh, from 2011, from the beginning of the so-called Syrian revolution, that was effectively a a, a, a color revolution in Syria with the help of the Gulf states, that the, these U.S. Um, Department of Defense, Pentagon uh, analysts knew that it would create uh, a group uh, like ISIS calling for or trying to create an Islamic state, uh, but that in that knowledge they actively supported them because they wanted to get rid of Assad as a way to screw over Russia and, uh, well, mainly Russia. So uh, they were happy to go along with that. So any suggestion that you might be hearing and have heard from Western governments about how they are they are the implacable enemies of ISIS and they're doing everything they can to stop them is complete and utter bullshit. As reported or uh, as evidenced directly by this Department of Defense uh, uh, report, that says that they knew this was going to happen they, and they actively conspired in the creation of it by funding and supporting uh, the Gulf states and directly funding and supporting uh, uh, these so-called Syrian rebels, which from the very beginning really were ISIS. So it's there you go. It's all interesting. Yeah. Something called game theory has a lot to do with all of this, the mm-hmm. way that they tried to manage things and... Mm. Uh, gauge risks by offsetting that group against this group, this country against that, and so on. And uh, the weird news this week is that John Nash and his wife were killed today when they were thrown out of a taxi in a car accident in New Jersey. I mean, wow. This is the guy who was a mathematician, Had some got some fame for his math, but he's more famous for being the subject of the Oscar-winning movie A Beautiful Mind, and he's played by Russell Crowe. I mean, what are the odds he's met this weird and tragic death? Mm. Strange, him and his wife were, <coughs> were killed when they were <coughs> thrown from a taxi um, in a crash. Uh, the taxi driver wasn't killed. They were the only two fatalities. Apparently, they may not have been wearing seatbelts, but... Yeah, it did strike me as uh, strange, but uh, yeah, it just brings up the idea of game theory and um, and, and the idea that it has been used, uh, the concepts developed by uh, Nash around game theory, um, which is, like Neil was saying, the analysis of... Um, Predicting people's behavior yeah, based the, on certain conditions. Yeah, the analysis of, of conditions or the, uh, a strategy... Um, where, where you weigh up uh, the pros and cons of certain action actions uh, w- between you and an adversary uh, with the goal of um, making sure you always win effectively or at least that you don't lose. Yeah. Um, and that's been always the US government's, uh, obviously, or any empire, it's been there their agenda, their their goal has been yeah. always to either at least, at the very least not lose and ideally win uh, in any 
head-to-head uh, head 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 with an adversary yeah. and the permutations effectively of what you can do, what they can do and where those two where it goes down if you follow it. It's kind of like chess, you know, you follow it down the line and see, um, well, it's not really like chess, but you follow it down the line to see uh, ultimately how you can ensure that that you win and, and your adversary loses. You know, it's, it's a strange kind of, it's a strange uh, discipline to even uh, get get involved in or even to try and develop a theory about. I suppose it's natural at the same time, but um, I mean, it, it, it it requires that you have an adversary essentially all the time. You know, it requires that you are in a battle, in a war against other people for, uh, to, to win something, you know. Um, I suppose that's the, that's the definition of, um, of Western governments. Um, they've been in it to win it from the very beginning. The world is ours. Um, other thing over the past couple of weeks that we I don't think we mentioned it previously because it had just uh, broken was uh, Seymour Hersh's Bin Laden uh, article where he uh, citing he wrote an article uh, for the um, was the London Review of Books he released in the London Review of Books I think um, uh, basically debunking the U.S. government's official story about the death of Bin Laden in Pakistan according to Hersh's uh, source who was a, he didn't base this on documents necessarily, it was on uh, on statements from a source that uh, a member of his, former member of the CIA, who told him that um, Bin Laden in that house in Abbottabad in, in Pakistan, that he was not, you know, running Al-Qaeda from there. He was in fact a prisoner of Pakistani intelligence and had been for a long time. That um, and that the Pakistani intelligence uh, had told the Americans that that was the case and told him, told them where he was, and um, so that the whole thing was, according to Hirsch, the whole thing was a was a, a theater, uh, a drama set up to look like they had finally found Bin Laden and they were going in to surprise him and get him and engage in a gun battle with him and take him out and blah blah blah. That was all complete. Is all complete bullshit. Uh, that it was just a setup. You had your, you know, you had the, you had him captive in a house. Uh, he was going nowhere. He was totally powerless, and you could then enact the drama for public consumption. Um, it's interesting, of course, that the, the sneaky, lying SOBs in 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 the in the Pentagon came out with. Um, 10 days or so, a week or 10 days after Hirsch released this article, they came out with uh, 400 intelligence reports that they said had been generated uh, in the first few days um, of the uh, after they had uh, raided Obama's compound, they got all of this information and they had it had generated 400 intelligence reports and they released some of these intelligence reports and some of the documents they, they claimed they um, they had taken from the house showing his you know, Al-Qaeda's uh, operational structure and uh, how it organized itself and what it was planning to do, etc., etc. So they released this just 10 days afterwards, but of course they, they said that uh, this had been in the planning for, for months and it just so happened that it came out 10 days after Hirsch's debunking article. But, and, and they, you know, the media jumped on it and, and tried to claim that this was evidence that, you know, the official story was true, you know, here's, but nothing in the documents that were released uh, 
contradicted anything or said nothing in the documents released proved the official story. So it was a bit of a smokescreen and um, largely the the media has ignored Hirsch's article. Uh, but it's interesting because it, it in itself is really probably only a limited hangout because Bin Laden, as we most people suspect, most people with any sense suspect, uh, died a long time ago, 10, 12, 13 years ago. And he has, since then, he's just been a, a phantom. Um, but at the very least, uh, Hirsch is quite convincingly debunked um, the official story and shown uh, the U.S. government and its intelligence agencies as being the bullshit artists that they are and that they fabricate uh, reality in the sense they fabricate the reality of the war on terror and they fabricated effectively the uh, the the drama of the capture and killing of um, Osama bin Laden. That much, if you don't want to go the full hog and say that he died 12 years ago, uh, you can be fairly sure based on this evidence from Hearst that, uh, that the American government blatantly lied about that uh, operation to capture Osama bin Laden, that he was basically a sitting duck and they just created the drama around it. Um, one thing that Hirsch was accused of was, uh, one rebuttal to his uh, his argument was that, you probably heard this one before, it was that the US government could not have sustained uh, such a false narrative about, bin La- about the bin Laden raid, raid for four years, given that all of the thousands of people Uh, American soldiers, seamen, airmen and intelligence officers and Pakistani uh, military and civilians who must have known the truth about it. So how, with so many people knowing the truth, according to Hirsch, how could they have covered it up? Um, Of course, there was reports and there's a BBC report, if anybody wants to look it up at the time, where people living close by to the supposed Bin Laden compound at the time uh, spoke to the BBC locals living there and said that no, no Osama bin Laden wasn't in there. I know the guy who lives in there. That's not Osama bin Laden. He's never been here. Uh, so this is, you know, these are reports the BBC were getting at the time. But of course, they ignored those. Well, what do those people know? But anyway, this argument about they couldn't have covered up such a such a, a, a conspiracy that would require uh, the involvement of so many people for so long uh, probably reminds people of the 9-11, one of the arguments about uh, 9-11 being a uh, a conspiracy, essentially, uh, is that how could you cover up uh, the truth about 9-11 when so many people were, would have need to be involved? Uh, so it's the same argument that's being used to try and uh, reject Sersh's evidence, but Hirsch himself uh, countered that very, very well, I think, uh, when he said that... Um, his response was that tens of thousands of employees and contractors of the National Security Agency knew of its vast and illegal surveillance operations over the dozen years since the 9-11 attacks, but not a single uh, person came forward well, or revealed anything until Edward Snowden did. Um, actually, a few of them have, but didn't matter. No, but offic- well, but officially, you know, in the sense of, well, people came forward to... Uh, there were five or six whistleblowers prior. Right. One was imprisoned. The others were just silenced. Right. Well, that's one example of how it happens. But, I mean, when you're talking about thousands of people, you know, the, their, their argument is, uh, this, the narrative here is that when you have thousands of people involved in a, in a conspiracy, you're going to have at least, you know, 
50%. So you're still going to have thousands of people all coming out and talking to the press. You know, everybody's going to reveal the illegality of what mm-hmm. the US government is doing. This NSA illegal wiretapping program proves that to be so, to be false yeah. because if you know anything about human psychology, you know how easy <clears throat> it is for everyone to know the truth and no one to actually say it. Yeah. Well, people don't like the truth, you know. Everyone knows. I mean, everyone listening to the show, everyone you know around the street, everyone knows politicians lie and are crooked, but they will momentarily think the politician is telling the truth about X and Y based on certain conditions. For example, the inducement of euphoria. This is a good thing. We all need to get behind it. Or the contrary, which is when terror is brought to the situation. Yeah, but also... Just to be Charlie. If you weren't Charlie, you were... Right, people are pressured... uh, and there's also national national security considerations, you know. People will bow to the idea of national security and doing what's right for your country and, and people will believe all sorts of things that they're told uh, that you would think would uh, run counter to their own sense of uh, morality and what's right and wrong. Uh, but people, people aren't... People, th- people think that people are, are far more, um, you know, righteous and... Uh, uh, honest than they actually are. I mean, if you're understanding anything about modern cognitive psychology, you understand that people don't even know their own motivations for why they do things. People lie to themselves all the time. So when you have, uh, the, when the standard operating procedure for the average human being is to spend most days lying to themselves about what they themselves are doing, how can you even consider that it would be a problem? for them to create similar narratives or lie to themselves in a similar way about things that are much more important or presented them as much presented to them as much more important like, you know, national security and fighting terrorism. I mean it's just a no brainer, you know? So um anyway. That was all very uh, enlightening to me anyway. I didn't know half of it. <laughs> but now I'm informed and I hope you have been too but it's all quite uh, I don't know we, we struggle to find some um, some more lighthearted stuff uh, uh, these days because there isn't uh, really much of it around and um, we hope we haven't depressed you too much but in an effort to maybe uh, lighten the, the, the tempo a little bit I think it's time for a pop culture roundup from uh, well, you know who he is. We don't, but maybe you do. His name's Relic. And here he is. Well, hello, and welcome. It's Relic here again, inviting you all in to spend some time with me in my little one-room log cabin that I call home where we'll sit together by the fireplace and have us a little chat about all the comings and goings of all those ultra-famous people down there in the city of Los Angeles, California. That's right, I'm talking about another singular edition of Pop Culture Roundup, recorded each week on the frostbitten shores of Upper Lake Canada. Now... Every winter round here, there are many elderly and retired people from all over this fine country who pack up and head down south to warmer climes, probably to escape the bitterly long cold winter. 
We call them the Canadian snowbirds, and they tend to migrate in droves every November to strange and exotic locales like Miami and San Diego. However, it's a little-known fact that there are quite a few Yanks down there who do the same thing every summer. In order to escape the blistering Arizona heat and oppressive Florida humidity, these overly tanned, Bermuda short-wearing retirees pack up their Winnebago's and head up north to my neck of the woods inside the Arctic Circle. We call them the American Sun Buffaloes on account of their hairy backs and generally rotund features, likely a result of a steady diet of fast food and light beer. Ah, oh, but they're all right, these folks. We don't mind them too much. Arriving every summer with their sad little flags and their big happy meals and some Leonard Skinner blasting from the eight-track player. One's always got to be a good neighbor, don't you think? Now, getting back to pop culture, let's see what celebrity dishes we have cooking on the interstove menu for this evening. Gawker website is reporting that uber-handsome Ocean's Eleven actor and bachelor no more, George Clooney, has been vacationing in Lake Como, Italy, with his new wife, Amal. To protect the celebrity couple's privacy, the town's mayor has just passed a law that would charge a $600 fine to any person who says hello to them. Anybody, any non-famous regular Joe like you or me who might dare work up the courage to, to greet the famous Hollywood icon. Well, apparently these days it's against the law to even attempt to approach supercilious Tinseltown royalty, as they are so far above the rest of us unwashed masses that even a cordial greeting is now being considered as a form of assault. And word has it that the town is now considering stiffening the penalties even further. Asking for an autograph could soon result in having one's hands chopped off. And merely making eye contact with a celebrity without permission could lead to a life sentence in prison, forced to watch endless reruns of ER. And that, my friend, sounds to me like a fate worse than death. True story. In other news, much to the chagrin of adolescent teenage girls around the globe, Tribute magazine is reporting that uh, Mr. Zain Malik has made an imminent departure from the British boy band One Direction. Zain is believed to have quit the group due to numerous rumors about him cheating on his fiancée a singer, Miss Pierre Edwards, a member of the British girl band, Little Mix. Hmm, that's strange. A 22-year-old member of a 
British boy band engaged to a 21-year-old member of a British girl band? What could they possibly have in common? I mean, besides an abysmal lack of talent. High five! Word on the grapevine is that Miss Pierre has threatened to cancel their engagement after photos were released showing Zayn with his arm around a 19-year-old female fan at a Thailand nightclub called Seduction. Well, all I can say about that is when you go alone into a bar called Seduction, you get what you pay for. Now, the emergence of the all-boy pop band is a unique Western cultural phenomenon, preceded by such supergroups as NSYNC, New Kids on the Block, the Bee Gees, and Bay City Rollers. Now, One Direction is unique, in that they got their start on one of those newfangled reality singing shows, you know, like American Idolatry, or The Voices in My Head, or The X Factor. You know, I think it would have been better if they'd called the show the Y Factor, as in, why are there so many of these horribly predictable lame karaoke fests on the TV these days? They all look and sound exactly the same. Try giving any one of these contestants a, an actual instrument to play, and they probably wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, I saw a show once where the, the host gave a real guitar to one of these pop diva wannabes and asked her to find the G-string. Poor girl looked so confused, started tugging on her underwear. Darndest thing I ever seen. Now, Getting back to One Direction, this latest flash-in-the-pan plastic boy band, in Relic's humble opinion, there's only one suitable place for this type of insipid pop music, and that's to be flushed right down the toilet. So that way, when in North America, they may go in one direction, but down under in Australia... They can go in another direction altogether. <laughs> That'll fix them, fix them good. In our last story for the evening, Tribute Magazine is reporting that Academy Award-winning actress Julianne Moore was filming a commercial to promote tourism in Turkey when she was fired by the director for poor acting. Apparently, many prominent government officials did not think her performance was very good, claiming that the Mockingjay actress has a depressive persona. Personally, I think those Turkish officials are just being petty and holding a grudge against Hollywood actors in general because every time a big block Buster movie flops at the box office. Critics call it a real turkey. Worst movie ever! Well, that's all I got for this week, kids. Until next time, it's your old friend Relic here, drying his wet woolly socks in front of a blazing fire and saying, 
always remember to keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. All right, thanks for that, Relic. That was uh, very enlightening, uh, as always. Um, and, uh, you know, all of it 100% true. So, uh, yep. Yeah. We uh, will be back next week, folks, with another show. So thanks to our listeners and thanks to our chatters. Hope you all had fun. Uh, we did. So until then, have a good one. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>